Welcome to the Midlife Midsters podcast, your podcast for inspiration on being bold and saying yes to making the best out of midlife. We're so glad you joined us for this insightful podcast on life after death with the ever-inspiring Daisy Berexa. It isn't quite what you might think when first hearing the title of our show this week. It's not so much about the afterlife as much as it is about living life after. But before we get started, we're going to do some introductions. I'm Marianne. I'm Michelle. Hi, I'm Marla. I'm Leslie Ann. And I'm Daisy. Thank you, Daisy, for being here. We look forward to this discussion today. Now, I know you lived um, in the corporate world for a long time up until recently, and you made a, a decision to change that. We'll talk more about that. But even previous to that, your upbringing, it's, I want to hear a little more about it. You're actually born in Colombia, that's right? Yes, that's right. I okay. was born in Bogota, Colombia. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. Um, so my mom and dad met on a blind date here in Washington, D.C. Uh, a long time ago. He was Colombian. My mom's American. My mom always wanted to marry a diplomat, but she had no idea it would be a Colombian one. You know, she had ideas of Italy or France or, you know, God only knows where, but you know, she had this wonderful idea. Instead, she married a Colombian who was also a diplomat. Um, I was born and raised there. Then my dad was transferred multiple times. I ended up um, in high school and a boarding school here in the U.S. and then college. Met the man of my dreams and we've been married 31 years. And that's why I stayed in the U.S. Okay, great. I'm not sure where you want to start about the life event that changed everything for you. But I thought we could start with you sharing kind of the circumstances surrounding the death and subsequent return to life experience. Sure. Um, okay, so my story is, is it's quite unusual for many reasons. And I would say the biggest part of it that I think of every day is how lucky I was. And I was lucky. Um, I was living in Dallas. It was COVID. Uh, we were all shut in. I was on the 16th floor of an apartment building. And my husband at the time had a global responsibility. So most of his staff was all over the world. Usually on a Monday morning, his first conference call would be 5 or 5.30. But that Monday morning, June 15th of 2020, um, he ended up having a delay and his first call was at 6.30. I hadn't been feeling well, but I had no idea how sick I was. I went into the restroom and the next thing my husband remembers is finding me there head on the back of the toilet with my eyes wide open, completely unresponsive. So rush, you know, call 911, rush me to the hospital. I coded in the ambulance for four minutes straight. A code in an ambulance is not only something that most people don't survive. Um, a four minute code is a long code, whether you're in an ambulance or in a hospital. So um, I just got very lucky that he was there, able to find me. The doctors were there. I was near Baylor and they got me to the hospital on time. Um, turns out that I had a staph infection which had gone septic. I was not aware I had a staph infection. And uh, the sepsis was basically shutting down my entire system. So they fought for 36 hours to keep me alive. And I got lucky again. Incredible hospital, incredible doctors. And somehow I was a fighter. That's what they said. I was a fighter. And so I survived. And, um, and from then, a whole new life started for me and a whole new way of looking at everything started. But I start by saying I was so lucky and I know how lucky I was. I need like a moment. I know. Because <laughs> like that was a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. Um, and 
emotional. It's emotional. It's very emotional. So I know what you were saying earlier about at first it was really hard to talk about it with people. It was actually really um, emotional to hear you you share that and to hear you say that you coded in an ambulance for four minutes. Yeah. Well, in an ambulance, your odds of surviving are in half, less than half of in a hospital. And for our listeners who don't know what coded means, can you tell us a little bit about that? Of course. Coding actually means that your heart stops entirely. So um, my heart stopped. My system effectively shut down. It could no longer uh, sustain itself. And because I had an incredible team of EMTs in the ambulance, they would not give up on me. So they pumped and pumped. They shocked me twice, and they did CPR. And by doing CPR... They kept enough oxygen flowing through my body to not let my brain get damaged or other things get damaged. But I'll tell you, they cracked my ribs. They, they burn your skin when they shock you, things like that that you don't even know. But that's the only way they can keep you alive or that's the only way they can bring you back. And for me, that's what it was. It was four minutes of them working really hard. And finally, as we were pulling into Baylor's ER, I came back. Daisy, how did you become aware that you had died and had the near-death experience? That's a really good question. Um, I now know more in hindsight than at the mm-hmm. time, right? Because at the time, well, at the time, you're in the ICU. So when I first arrived in the ICU, they put me on a ventilator and they gave me enough drugs so that my system, my brain would be shut down so that I could be on a ventilator while they tried to figure out what infection I had, what had caused this. I had also developed pneumonia, so they were trying to manage several things. And um, it was really interesting because when, when according to them, when I started fighting back and they could tell that I didn't, I was bucking the ventilator, basically, they said, okay, we're going to start weaning her off the medication and see if, if she can breathe on her own. And when they, um, when they did that, and I finally wasn't on the ventilator anymore, I opened my eyes and they asked me, they said, do you know where you are? And the really funny thing said, I, the, the very funny part about it was I said, of course I do. I'm in Paris in the snow and it's 2020. And no, I'm sorry. And I said, it is 2000. And they were like, okay, the drugs are still either talking or, you know, it was one of those very kind of weird moments. Um, eventually, as I started to become more conscious of things, they explained that I'd had a, an a episode. They didn't tell me what it was. They said that I was very ill with an infection. They were trying to figure out what kind of staff it was to get the right medication and other medication they were giving me. And then finally, um, one of the doctors said, you know, we, we've been struggling, but you're doing really well because for the first 36 hours, we were really very concerned based on what happened in the ambulance. And that's when I was informed that I had actually coded for four minutes and I didn't understand. And I actually didn't quite believe, I mean, I didn't, I just okay. couldn't understand it or accept it, I guess, is a better way of putting it. So finally, after like a day and a half, I kept asking questions and I was asking a lot of questions. And the doctors finally came in and said, one of the doctors who was, I guess, in charge of my case, overseeing all the other specialists. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, you seem like a very curious, very smart person. Clearly your brain hasn't been damaged and we're so lucky about that. And he said, do you, do you want to see what happened? And I said, what do you mean? He said, would you like to see your EKG from the ambulance? And I said, oh, yes, wow. I do. I said, I do. So he turned 
the computer machine, the screen, and they had all my information on there, including everything that had been done in the ambulance. And he showed me my EKG, and you could see it blip, 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 and then, and it's green, like the green lines that we see on TV. It's green, and then you get this black line, and it goes white. Straight line. Black dot. That's the one-minute mark. Straight white line. Black dot. And it did that for four minutes. And I just stared at it, and I said, my heart was God, he's like, yes, you effectively were what we would call dead in terms of your heart and your system working on its own independently. Did that just bring a rush of emotion or shock or days or <laughs> that's when that's when I that's when I started thinking of my new name, which is funny that you bring that up because I was so confused. I still was confused, honestly, because it's very hard to accept that you died. I mean, it's just not natural. People can't see themselves die in dreams. You'll wake up before you die in a dream because your your brain is protecting you always, as as you and I have talked. Um, but I said to the doctor, I said, "Wow, I pulled a real doozy, didn't I?" And he said, "Well, you can say that." And then one of the doctors used a few expletives to mm -hmm. describe exactly how bad my doozy was and how hard they'd fought to keep me alive, and. Um, Eventually, as I was deciding on my new name, I, um, my name at birth was Gwyneth Ann, and I'm the 11th Gwyneth Ann in my family. My mother's a Gwyneth Ann. My grandmother was a Gwyneth Ann. And I figured if I died on, and I was reborn on June 15th, I got to name myself. <laughs> so part of, we love the name Daisy, and we chose it because pushing up daisies, and daisies are resilient, and daisies, daisies are strong, and daisies come back, and you know, and, and, and there's just something about Daisy that just resonated with me as I was realizing that I had this fight in front of me that I had been strong enough to fight and live, but I had to, to fight. And, uh, and so it became part of the joke at the hospital. I said, yep, I'm now Daisy, Daisy who pulls doozies. And that's part of how I got my name. You know, it's interesting that you say that you fought because you did fight or you wouldn't be here, but you subconsciously fought. It wasn't conscious. And I just find that very interesting. Not really a question, more of a comment, but yeah, your inner being wanted to be here and fought for you. That, that leads me to a question, which is before this happened, were you, what was your perception of or relationship to, which is kind of a weird word to say, but I know you, so I know you yeah. get where I'm coming with the idea of dying. You know, I was never really afraid of it per se. Um, you know, as a child growing up in Colombia, South America, you had to worry about your safety a lot. So I had concerns about safety and security when I was young. But I didn't really have, I wouldn't say I had a fear of dying. And unfortunately, I had lost enough people close to me and my family over the years that that I never saw it as something to, to be afraid of. I just didn't know what it meant. If I had any emotion about it, it was um, of a... Um, Fear, and fear isn't the right word, but just a, a feeling of sadness about leaving the people I love. So if I ever had an, an emotion about it, it would be more that. It would be my missing out on things. But I wasn't afraid of dying. And during the period that you were in the hospital after, you know, they revived you, do you, were you, I mean, Marianne said it was kind of an unconscious fight, which I think is mostly it. But I'm just curious if you had any conscious sense that you were fighting. Oh, I, I, I think in hindsight, there are things that um, 
So for example, I was not aware, but somehow I must, I mean, I was, you know, there are all these levels of consciousness that you learn about. Um, and somewhere in one of them, I knew my husband because he was the only one they would allow to be with me because it was during COVID. And fortunately, we both cleared COVID. So then they let him be with me in the ICU in a private room. And uh, he would play continuously until I came around, um, Made to Last, which is our song. So he would just play that over and over and over again. And then when he called my closest friend back in California and told her what had happened, she immediately said, forget the friends. I'll take care of them. You take care of you and and Daisy, or in those days, Gwen, and her family. And she took over communicating with all my friends, and they took over communicating with each other, and they filmed messages for me and stuff like that, which somehow I felt warm, and I felt somewhere I knew that was going on. And I know that because in hindsight, I know something didn't feel cold or like I wasn't going to make it. Somewhere in the subconscious, it was there. I love that. It was definitely there. Well, I, th- I think, you know, we, we talk about strength. We talk about courage. We talk about being bold. And it isn't always conscious of it, right? You, you, we talk about inner strength, right? There's something inside of you that gave you that strength to fight, go on, um, whatever it was. Yeah, absolutely. I also think, uh, probably because I experienced this, that there really is, when it's your time, it's your time. And and I truly kind of believe that. And I think that it wasn't my time, but I think it was a time for a good wake up for me, for like a shake me up a little bit to, to find more of a purpose in the things I really love as opposed to some of the things that I did very, very well for my career, but maybe weren't the things that are that feed my soul, um, to be much more cognizant of, of life on a day-to-day basis instead of just, you know, achieving the next milestone or whatever. So I think there was a reason for it. I really believe that. Like almost more purposeful yeah. in what you do? Yeah. I think more purposeful and I think more, um, I, I think it really um, helped me figure out priorities. I mean, priorities are very different. Yeah, so I was going to say, you know, uh, a lot of um, transitions, right, are are what catapults that kind of change. And I guess, and I'm not really sure how I want to ask this, but um, clearly, as you said, you know, you made decisions after this experience to live life differently. And I guess um, I want to ask, not so much just yet, what are those changes that you made, but how do we, right, as people in this time of our lives not have to experience that significant of a transition to take that time to take stock of who we are and what we do, especially having careers that you might have started 20, 25, or 30 years ago to say, okay, you know what? Let me think about what it is that I don't I don't remember what the words you use, but I was use like, you know, what sets your soul on fire? Yeah, what makes you really tick? Um, I, I think one thing that I realized was that um, I had spent most of my career and and I ha- and don't get me wrong, I loved my career and I and I had a very successful one. But I spent most of my career, I think, meeting 
others' expectations. Starting with graduating from school in New York City in the late 80s when everybody went to Wall Street. So I went to Wall Street, you know, and um, and I did. I loved it and I was good at what I did. And um, then I was a consultant, had an incredible consulting um, life. But, but I always found myself wanting to give back to the community, give back to people. You know, a lot of people would say that I'm very Latin that way, that kind of my Latin personality comes out. And I think that's partly true. Partly it's Latin. Partly it's just who I am. So, um, so I realized, okay, um, I need to find things that satisfy those needs in me. But I also realized that I need to create more boundaries. And I think as we get older, we need to become better about boundaries and taking care of ourselves, but also knowing what really what we want versus what we think we have to do versus continuously pleasing somebody else. You know, there used to be a joke at, at my office that long time ago, fortunately, but there used to be a joke that if you wanted something get done to get done, go to Gwen because she'll get it done. Well, that's fine. And I did, but that's not fulfilling. That's achieving. It's very different to achieve than to be fulfilled. I think I want to back up just a little bit. You had this experience and you talked about kind of feeling the warmth of friends and family and your husband. Can you share um, any more about kind of your reflection back on that experience when you weren't conscious, when you were kind of fighting to regain it? Yeah. Um, I think it was really interesting because when people asked me, you know, a lot of people have asked me, did you see a light? That's a very common question. Um, did you hear anything? Did you feel a pull? And actually, I didn't. What I did know was that when I was put in the ambulance, I wasn't conscious enough to understand what was happening, but I could hear noises or, and, and see, like, you know, when you close your eyes, you can see light if it's very bright. Obviously, in an ambulance, it could be very bright. So I could hear noises. I could distinguish anything. And then something happened, and then I could hear them again. So clearly when that something happened was when my brain was just, and my heart were not functioning. Um, but I also know that when I got into the hospital, as soon as I, they started waking me back up, I didn't feel pain. I didn't feel, that may have been the medication, but I felt safe. I felt comforted. I felt like I was coming back. I felt like I was, you know, just coming back to, to life, literally. Um, and it's funny because um, I've never been one. I, I'm a Unitarian, so um, I believe in everybody's faith and, and, and I respect absolutely everybody's faith. Um, and my, my only hope is that people don't impose theirs on others or don't use them in a negative way. So I'm, I've always just been very open. And, um, but it was very interesting because the day that I was finally very conscious, I kept looking at the end of my bed. I had a pillow at the end of my bed to prop up my feet. And I kept looking at the pillow and there were these little angels on my pillow. And I kept saying to my husband, there are angels on my pillow. And my husband would say, there are. And I'd be like, yep. And then I'd look up and say, there's an angel on the wall. There is an angel on the ceiling. They weren't moving. They weren't anything big. They weren't like life-size. They were just little angels. And it was really interesting but I saw them and I've can't explain it. Don't know if it's because I was looking for that at that moment. Don't know. Don't know. But it made me feel really safe. I was like, okay, I'm here and somebody's watching over me. That's a gift. I think it might be. <laughs> yeah. 
before the incident, when you went into the bathroom, do you remember having any kind of feeling then that something was wrong or any sort of feeling of impending something? Yeah, I was not feeling well. Um, so my husband, as I mentioned earlier, was very, he was in charge globally of a finance function of an equity investment firm. And so we were always on the road. And so at that point, I had quit my job and we would spend a lot of time in Europe and in Asia and traveling around. And summertime was always our Europe time. We'd be there for months. So here it was summer and I was trapped on the 16th floor of an apartment building in Dallas, Texas, where I didn't know very many people. And unfortunately, people in my building who were very young um, weren't taking COVID very seriously. So they were in and out of elevators without masks. So I was just concerned. So I felt kind of trapped. And one of the things that I used to do, um, which I don't do anymore, I'm very proud of, it's one of the things that I've worked through with my therapist a lot. What I used to do was um, if I got stressed, I would stop eating. And I literally would stop eating. And if I got really upset and really worried, I'd have a drink. Well, guess what? Have a drink and don't eat for three days and it's not good for your body, especially if you're really run down. So by the time I got to the hospital, in the 72 hours before my event, I'd had one fried egg to eat and I was weighing 94 pounds and I wasn't feeling well. So I knew something was wrong. I had no idea how sick I was. So you mentioned you changed your name. Yeah. <laughs> what, and, and you've talked a little bit about, but tell us more about what has changed for you since this experience. Well, a lot of things. Um, the first is knowing how lucky I was and appreciating that. But because of that, I have a whole different concept of gratitude. I was always grateful and I always felt like I had a really good life. But I kind of went about having a really good life. Um, and I have a whole new concept of the smallest things that happen of any person that enters my life, you know, what they can be as a gift or as, you know, energy that that is positive where I can share something with them they can share something with me I'm just much more grateful day to day and um I got a book from my therapist right after um my event because one of the things that I that they started me on aside from a really good nutritionist was a therapist who could help me with post-traumatic stress um and there aren't a lot who are very experienced in this because there are not a huge amount of people who go through what I went through that's just that's just a fact but there are some that are very good. And mine gave me a wonderful book called Tiny Habits. And the very first tiny habit is that you get up every single day and you put your feet on the floor and you say, it's going to be a good day. Even if you know that day isn't going to be a good day or even if something goes wrong that day. But if you say that every single day, you start out with a completely different way of looking at the world. So I'd say that's gratitude's a very big thing for me now. Um, I notice little things. I appreciate little things. Um, I'm much more, I mean, I'm much more forgiving. I just don't, I don't get worked up about things that might have gotten me worked up before because I just don't find it's worth my time or energy. Um, and I've learned that because I went through what I went through and most people, even though they can understand and 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 then they my family and my husband obviously they cared about me and they worried about me and they they went through a very difficult time because they can't experience what I experienced and sometimes not so much with my husband but with some of my family it's a little frustrating because I think 
there's a part of them that's still in denial that it happened because they don't want to like if I you know I don't think my mom wants to accept that her daughter died and I understand that um but that makes me much more able to realize that most things that happen in life and most interactions are about the person that you're interacting with not about you and that's given me a lot of an ability to to just think often before I react or say somebody's not having a good day or say I hope that somebody's okay you know and not take things on or take things as personally as I used to and you also made a, a kind of a career change right I mean you're now doing something very different from Wall Street yeah I'm pretty much volunteering my life away <laughs> um I am. I'm volunteering a lot, and um, I've been involved with some great organizations, including the University of Nebraska, and um, obviously here in in um, Virginia with NVAL, which I love, and I'm getting involved there. Um, and I, more than anything else, I have found found a way to um, give back in ways that are um, meaningful to me, um, and that and that genuinely affect somebody else. They're not at all about me. What a shift in value. Now, I, I didn't know you before. I, I mean, I haven't known you that long. I'm sure you always valued people's opinion and people themselves. But to shift it more away from you to mainly their focus, yeah, that's saying something. Well, it's funny. There's a funny story that my mom likes to share. And I think maybe this event caused me to come full circle. When I was really young and we lived in Columbia, um, it, it was a time when things were very difficult in Colombia, and most people were very, very poor. And we had these, we had gamines. Those are beggars, children beggars that their parents send them out to beg for them. And so they would come to our house and they would beg for food or whatever. And we would always give them food, things like that. And one night my parents went out to a, a dinner party and uh, I stayed home with the people who took care of me and my grandmother. And um, I started going through the whole house and taking out every pillow I could find and every blanket I could find. And the people who took care of our house were not very happy with me and they were trying to get me to stop. And my grandmother said, no, let her. Just let her do what she wants to do. I think I was either four or five. I'm not quite sure. And what I did was when my parents came home, I'd stayed up. I hadn't gone to bed. I refused to go to bed. And when my parents came home, I showed them into my dad's office, his library, and I had figured out how to put 10 beds for gaminas on the floor. But I had figured out how to put their heads on different ends um, so that they wouldn't talk at night. But then I got very upset because I realized they hadn't showered and then they'd smell each other's feet. So I had all these concerns about things that were... So it's really interesting that that was very much in my DNA. But then I went off to boarding school. I went off to New York. I went off to banking. I went off to consulting. And now part of me is bringing me back to, I think, that because that's probably more me than any of the other things. Well, I've gotten to know you a little bit through Northern Virginia Alliance League, uh, Fernanda and um, Leslie Ann, and the world is a better place with you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I have um, one other question for you, Daisy. How has this, I mean, you said a minute ago, like your, your family obviously couldn't, don't know what you experienced because they haven't experienced it, but how has this changed them? And, and in particular, your husband, I mean, but for the fact that he was there that day, he, it could have had a very different outcome. And I wonder if he, if it has changed his approach or his outlook on life that this happened. Yeah, um, I think it has in, in two ways. Um, 
one is he would be the first to tell you he likes Daisy a lot. <laughs> he likes somebody who goes with the flow more and, um, you know, he he really, he realizes the, the positive aspects of, of the way I try to live my life now. I would also say that, unfortunately, and this is something that he's going to have to work through with time, he's afraid because it happened once before. And so he tends to be more, more cautious of things. You know, he'll notice things like even today, because we were busy doing something in the house, I didn't have as big a lunch as he wanted me to have. And he will immediately, like his antenna will go up. And I understand that. So that's something he's going to have to work through. But um, I think in general, he would tell you that he's pretty happy with Daisy. I'm sure it did make him feel more mortal. It really did. You know? Yeah. And it, and it's hard. I mean, it's really hard when the person that you've been with for that long. Um, and we don't have children, so we are, you know, our unit. So, so I also wanted to ask you about um, your conception of your soul. Because yeah. sometimes with trauma, people come into a closer contact with that spirit being yeah. of themselves. Can yeah. you talk about that? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a Unitarian. So I've always believed that there is a spirit that connects us and it connects me to other people and it connects me to something much bigger than me. Um, it connects me to the earth. Um, and what this has done for me is it's proven that part of my job is to appreciate humanity because somehow we are all not only interconnected, but we are all worthy. Every one of us is, is worth fighting for, is worth having a second chance, is worth being considered as a, as a person. And I think that that spirit that somehow held me up has taught me that if I don't hold people up, I'm failing why I'm still here. It's so poignant. You know, Daisy, thank you for being here thank today. Thank you very much for including me in this. I really appreciate the opportunity to share with all of you, and and thank you very much. We appreciate it, and you thank opening you. up like this. It's not an easy topic, I'm sure, but thank you. I think the listeners will get a lot out of it as well, and what a story, but not just a story, a life experience that you've had, and you've just done so much with it, and I think we can all learn from that. Thank you. Yeah. Very, very grateful to you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm grateful to all of you for giving me this opportunity. And for our listeners, you can find us at American Midsters. That's AmericanMidsters.com.